All right, welcome in. Lake Kick is live. It is Sunday night. It is April 19th, the year of our Lord, 2020. It is a busy night, even under quarantine in the sporting world. We've got Lake Kick on the air live. We got a ton of people watching. We really appreciate that. The last dance documentary for the Bulls airs in a, about an hour. So uh, my word to you, we're going to be off the air so I can walk across the uh, business park complex and watch it myself. So we've got a lot to get to tonight. I am going to hit some new approach type content with Alabama. I know that sounds weird because they themselves were in the middle of a dynasty, but there is a lot new, a lot more new than maybe you realize beneath the surface happening in Tuscaloosa. I am going to respond to one of your emails because I encourage you to send them. I put my address right there as Colin is showing you on the uh, lower third there on the bottom of the screen. And one of you did just that from the state of Mississippi the other day. So I'm going to actually read that on air and comment because I thought it was pretty well thought out even though I disagree with most of it. I'm also going to give you the very latest that we're hearing on JT Daniels. It's a very hot name out there right now. The USC quarterback, will he transfer? Will he stay at USC? If he does transfer, where's he going to go? That video that we did the other night did insane numbers on the YouTube channel. So we're going to revisit that. And also, I've got some Q&As tonight that I'm going to get to. And uh, we had a couple good ones, really good ones submitted right before we went on the air in the chat. And if you are watching right now, or if you're watching the replay, please do us a quick favor. We're at 47 right now. I only need three of you or ideally like 30, to hit that thumbs up button, get us over 50, get us trending on the YouTube live section and really helps us out. So we appreciate you. I'm going to touch on the podcast a little bit later on. I gave you sort of um, an open question the other night on formatting and you responded, boy, did you respond? So I'm going to let you know what we're going to do with the Late Kick podcast coming up before the end of the show. Let's get right into it though. I want to go quick tonight. I don't want to go 55 minutes or some odd time like we did the other night. So let's get busy. There are three things that we try and do anytime we do a segment on this show. It is at the forefront of every piece of shaping of content that we put together on this program. Number one thing that we value is we value creation over aggregation. We do not just read a bunch of websites and then kind of repackage what they've already said. We want to have original content here that you didn't get anywhere else and you could not have heard anywhere else because it originated here. That's the first thing that we try to do. The second thing that we really value is an independent mentality over a herd mentality. On the day that we do shows, I try not to expose myself to anyone else's podcast, anyone else's writing. It's hard kind of sometimes to do show research and show prep when you're doing that, but I want to be with blinders on, ready to present what our ideas on this program are. The third thing that we really pride ourselves on is conviction over clicks. Clicks are the easiest thing in the world to get. I could do a show right now, and I could title it Five Reasons Why This Is Tom Herman's Last Year at Texas, and a bunch of people would watch it, a bunch of people would click on it, it would suck, it would be terrible content, but you'd watch it in the same way that you drive by a car wreck and you can't help but look at it, but yet afterwards, you will have driven on and you'll never see them again, just like sort of a, attracting an agnostic viewer in the industry. That's what they call those agnostic views. They're not attached to you. They're not married to you. They didn't establish an emotional connection with you. It's just you got them to look because you were the big, bright, blinking red light saying, hey, look at me, look at me. So they look. So we don't do any of that. What we try and do is we try and be honest with you. We shoot straight. I don't just do hot takes for the sake of hot takes or clicks. I try and give you reason, logic and fact-based reasoning. And then if you disagree, then we have obviously the chat and the comment section for that. Emails open. So I love to go back and forth with you. I say all that because we're starting with Alabama. And do you remember the Scott Cochran situation from 
oh, how long ago has it been? I've lost all track of time. A little while ago, Scott Cochran, you remember what happened. He leaves Alabama. He's going to Georgia. And you remember what the headlines were. Scott Cochran, for those of you unfamiliar, all three of you, longtime strength and conditioning coach for Alabama, real celebrity, kind of a cult figure amongst Alabama fans and really amongst kind of the subculture of college football fans in general. What did the aggregation crowd tell you that day? The low-hanging fruit crowd, the clicks crowd, they told you this is basically an atomic bomb being dropped on Alabama. It is catastrophic. There were even some reputable people out there that I would not classify in any of the previously mentioned categories that said the same thing. You remember what we said. We went on air the next time we had a show. We were just starting the show here at 24-7 Sports, at least. And I told you both sides are going to benefit from this. That was part instinct, and it was part me regurgitating what I had heard from people at Alabama. Outside of Alabama, it sent shockwaves. And I'm telling you, inside Alabama, it was met with a collective shrug of the shoulders. And a lot of people, maybe even including, if you're watching the video version, the head coach that you're seeing on the screen right now, Nick Saban, viewed it as an opportunity. So now we fast forward to this week. You think that not much has happened since then. What well, hasn't on the football field? And players haven't been on campus. But Nick Saban spoke about this this week. I'm going to read you a couple of quick quotes from Nick Saban, then we'll get back to it. They... We're talking about Baloo and Ray, the sports science tag team that they hired from Indiana. Those are names you're probably not familiar with yet. You will be. They, this is Nick Saban talking about the two guys he hired. They came in. We interviewed them. There was no question from a sports science standpoint, from a conditioning standpoint, they were light years in advance of what a lot of people had done in their programs for a long time, which we had done for a long, long time. Nick Saban goes on. We were already going down this path. Pause there, because I want you to really note that. There were changes coming, whether Scott Cochran stayed on board or not. We continue. We were already going down that path, so when these guys came aboard, everyone else we interviewed was pretty much like a strength coach of the past. These guys were really way advanced in terms of some of the things they did to prevent injury, some of the training programs, velocity training, explosive movement training. Just really, really excited to have them in the program. So what do we get here? Nick Saban knew he needed a new edge. You remember how they won a decade ago. It's been a little over a decade ago since he won his first championship at Alabama. That was the 2009 season. They won another one two years later. They won another one a year later after that. They just bludgeoned people to death. That's what they did. Their biggest edge on the rest of the sport was they were bigger and stronger and faster, but mainly bigger and stronger than everyone else. They were deeper. They were more talented, significantly more talented at any given point than whatever the second best talented roster was, but they bludgeoned you to death. I've told you a million times, I'm telling you right now, whoever's dominating at the present moment, whoever just won a championship in any given moment, right now in the ACC, for example, everyone thinks it'll be Clemson until the end of time. The sport at this level will never sit still. It's not a dead horse, guys. The sport at this level, as competitive as it is and as highly paid as these coaching staffs are, it never sits still for a long time. And that was no different than when Alabama started dominating the sport. College football didn't sit still. A lot of folks got creative. A lot of folks got imaginative. A lot of folks changed the way that they ran offenses because of Alabama. A lot of people changed their methodology and philosophy and recruiting because of Alabama. And so all of a sudden, you fast forward six, seven years, Alabama's still one of, if not the best programs in America, but there's 
an Ohio State or a Clemson and you get on the field with them any given year, there's not this massive gulf in talent. There's not this massive gulf in physicality between Alabama and those teams. Nick Saban has seen that for a while. You and I have seen it for a while. He's seen it for a while. Then they got a quarterback out of Hawaii by the name of Tua Tungavailoa, and they started to change a little bit about their identity. But what was missing was the physical edge. And we've seen that for a few years now with Alabama. So what I can tell you, what I told you a couple of months ago or a month ago, whenever this happened, and I'm going to reiterate now, they knew changes were needed. They didn't know exactly what the changes needed to be. They broke ground on that Sports Science Center a little while ago. That's nearing completion. I think it is complete now. But Nick Saban was in a boat where he was looking around and he knew we got way too many injuries. I mean, just to be blunt, if Alabama's roster is healthy over the last two years, they're the best team in America the last two years. But yet they weren't. Nowhere close. And you can say injury is a part of the game, and it is. Maybe not quite to the extent that Alabama had. So here's what I can tell you, not from just my observation, talking to people close to Alabama, including inside the program in some cases, they saw their injury situation as being a lot more than just freakish or flukish. They thought that they were partially to blame. What they couldn't fully know is where they were to blame. You can watch the injuries stacking up and you can watch the bodies on the injury reserve list stacking up and you can say, wow, that's a ton of foot injuries, isn't it? What caused it? I don't know. We got to figure it out though. So they think now you get a tag team that is a lot more advanced sports scientifically than maybe the previous guy. And you think you have an edge back. That's the next edge. Nick Saban thinks that he can create for them there. They're going to be talented. They're always going to recruit very well. That's the next edge they want. Um, it's normal to think about the here and now. You watch games on Saturday, I watch games on Saturday, and you may think that because this team is consistently ranked in the top four, top five, it's crazy to talk about fundamentally overturning a core tenant, that being the strength and conditioning aspect of the program. The reason why you watched them, even when they were winning championships, the reason why you have watched them for so long win and you've watched Nick Saban look like he was getting a parking ticket during the post-game celebration when confetti is falling, is because once guys like him have the result, they're done with it. There's not a whole lot of celebration. There's not anything like that. But the main reason is because it's the normal person thinking, this is what's happening right now. Let's celebrate it. All he's concerned about is what will happen. What is happening can't be changed. It's happening already. I mean, you are perfectly designed your organization is perfectly designed for the results you're getting right now. Well, he's worried about the future. And so while you're sitting there watching him maybe still win a championship in 2017, he's saying, boy, this Georgia team took us to the limit. In a lot of ways, we were really lucky to escape this thing with a win. And that's another championship in my trophy case. How much longer are we going to be getting by on this? Because that team over there is not as talented as my roster right now. And yet they pushed me around in the first half. We were shut out going into the locker room and I made a change at quarterback. And so while you're celebrating in 2017, he realizes we don't have the physical edge we used to have on teams. And because a lot more are recruiting on par with us, we're not going to have it. Where's our next edge? Sports science is our next edge. And now mark my words, Come this time next year, this time the year after that, people are going to look back in Athens, Georgia, and they're going to say, man, I'm really glad we got Scott Cochran. People at Alabama are going to look around and really not remember the Scott Cochran era all that much because they'll be more than happy with what they have with the new duo from Indiana. 
It's not a zero-sum game. This is not a football game. This is, this is a personnel move, and in this case, multiple personnel moves. You could have multiple winners, and I think you got multiple winners here with Georgia and Alabama. All right, let's move on. Let's move on. I tell you all the time, as I told you the other night, whenever I'm saying something on the air, I'm happy to have you disagree with me. I'm happy to go back and forth with you. Keep it civil. I put my um, Twitter handle there. Uh, by the way, follow me if you don't already. Talk a lot on there during the week with a lot of you, at Late Kick Josh. But I also put my email address there if you have a lot more to say. So a guy by the name of Lee reached out to me this week. Let me go back. So the other night, we were doing Q&A at the end of the show. That was uh, episode number 12, I believe. That was on Thursday night. And someone asked me, and it was really quick. I didn't really dive into it. I wanted to dive into it just a little bit more tonight. So I'm going to spend about five minutes on this. Someone asked, essentially, what's your opinion? Lane Kiffin, Mike Leach, who's better equipped to succeed in the state of Mississippi? I think the question was worded, who could own Mississippi? But I just took it as, who's going to succeed more? And I said, Lane Kiffin. And my, very quickly, my reasons were... I think Kiffin's the better recruiter. I think he's going to have more success recruiting in-state. I think his brand is going to play better out of state. And I also think that offensively what he does is more tailored to work in this conference. He's got familiarity, but so does Mike Leach. So that's not necessarily an edge for Kiffin. What I think he does is offensively, he does something that translates probably to more success in this conference. So someone took exception to that. Lee took exception to that. And I'm happy to read what he said here. Let's just go point for point. Because a lot of times people get really aggravated and they type and then people get aggravated in their response and it, you don't really get anywhere. So I'm going to read this point for point, take a couple of minutes here, and I'm going to respond. This is the email Lee sent. Really appreciate it. I'm a Mississippi State grad. I've heard you state at least twice that Kiffin is the better hire than Leach. Mississippi State has traditionally been a power run and strong defensive team. Ole Miss is more of a throw first team without a strong defense, kind of like the Big 12. I believe you've bought into the media hype that Ole Miss has a national brand and is better than Mississippi State because of this. Neither of these programs have national brands. In football and basketball, neither of them do. Nor is it relevant in any shape, form, or fashion how national your brand is and relevancy when it comes to which one of these head coaches is going to succeed. So that has nothing to do with my opinion, and I never stated that, and I never will. Let's continue. Mississippi State is changing the coach and offensive scheme to be more competitive in the league. The defense, here's where I first take exception, because this is a very bold assumption that I'm not going to go ahead and make. The defense will still be the type that Mississippi State is known for, strong and stingy. Wow, a change in offensive scheme. Who does that over time? Let me see. LSU last year when they went from the power run game to more pro style. And Bama, they've gone more spread instead of depending on just a couple of elite running backs. Let me tell you flat out what it's very foolish to do, and that is compare anything that LSU or Alabama have done to what Mississippi State's going to do. They've got something that you're not going to have in abundance, and those are racehorse athletes. Make no mistake, make no mistake, Mississippi State gets good players. They get really good players. Sometimes they get a few great players. LSU gets a boatload of great players. Alabama gets a boatload of great players. They have a totally different caliber athlete on their roster than you do. Secondly, even teams with better rosters than you, there is no magic button. I, I think we're going to have to make this point for about the next 10 years. After folks saw what LSU just did, every, guys, I'm telling you, everyone thinks now, not just fans, I think a lot of folks in administrative and maybe even coaching positions think that 
because Ed Orgeron was able to do it and you falsely categorized that guy as an idiot because he was able to do it, now all we've got to do is find wherever that magic button is and we press it and we just say, we're going to change offensively. And we make a hire of a guy that's going to change us offensively and you think that the other constant you had, defense, it just remains the same. You mentioned Alabama. You've seen them defensively lately? You're right. They did make an offensive shift at the expense of what? Alabama hadn't dominated defensively. Far from it over the last few years. That's my point. If even Nick Saban is not able to maintain one level while shifting on the other side with far superior athletes, a quarterback and receiver, most notably off offensive linemen going to the league left and right, what makes you think that you're able to do it? Because you tagged it in one paragraph like it's just that easy. Let's continue. You mentioned the elite defensive back play in the league. What he means here is, I question whether what Mike Leach does, which is very simple, if you ever hear him explain it, if you look at him call plays on Saturday, his play sheet's about a quarter of the size of this piece of paper. It's not because he has it all memorized, it's because there's not a, really a whole lot to it. The value there is repetition, 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 and doing a few things at such a lethally high level that people can't defend you in Lubbock, Texas and in Pullman, Washington. It's my belief that the defensive back play in this league is a whole lot different caliber week to week than what he's been facing, and it's going to show in terms of results. So that's what the emailer Lee here is mentioning. You mentioned the elite defensive back play in the league. It's always been there, and now Mississippi State will be throwing more intermediate routes to the tight ends. And in both cases, mostly linebackers are covering there. So I don't see where your observation has any merit. People say this every year with every team. We're gonna throw to the tight end more, we're going to hit more underneath routes. This is such a broad statement. I don't even, I'm not going to give it a lot of time here. Um, a football game is a whole lot more nuanced than this. That's kind of like saying, you know, we got a little more speed at outside linebacker this year, so we're going to be able to cover those routes out of the backfield. This game is not played in baseball format. They don't score in ones. They score in threes and they score in sevens. And the bottom line is you miss one gap and it's 80 yards to the house and that's seven points. That could be the difference in a game. And yet you sat there in July and said, hey, this, this kid at linebacker is going to solve all our problems. This kid at receiver is going to solve all our problems. A lot more complicated than that. A lot more complex than that. Finally, Lee says, I was living in Knoxville when Tennessee hired Kiffin. My wife and I, as well as most UT fans, couldn't believe the horrible hire. That's false. Most Tennessee fans were absolutely on board with the hire at the time. It's only revisionist history that leads people to talk about how categorically horrible the hire was. Tennessee recruiting was on fire the one year Kiffin was there. He pushed Alabama, the eventual national champion, to the wire in Tuscaloosa. An Urban Meyer Florida team that was favored by like 50 points against him, he gave them a pretty stiff challenge in year one. It was one and only year. A lot of people thought Lane Kiffin was about to do work at Tennessee, so please don't give me that. I remember it. Now, I also remember what it was like when he walked out, but I remember what it was like when he was there, too. My wife and I, as well as most UT fans, couldn't believe the horrible hire. Kiffin lasted one year and bolted to the next hot job. Yes, let's keep that in mind. The University of Southern California offered Lane Kiffin the head coaching job because of what he was doing at Tennessee. He's going to do the same thing at Ole Miss, as it's a lower-tier rebound program that's beneath him. I mean, are we calling Lane Kiffin a bum, but in the very next sentence talking about how this program is beneath him? Uh, according, to, according to whose mentality? Secondly, there's part of this I can't argue with. There's a lot of proving himself Lane Kiffin has to do. That part I won't argue with. And that part takes some blind faith. I just happen to believe that he's more capable 
if there is a changing of the lane, so to speak, if he is maybe a guy that's learned a lot of lessons, say like, for instance, Ed Orgeron did. I'm not calling national championships for Ole Miss, but there was a time where Ed Orgeron was the head coach at Ole Miss. And then he you know, kind of bounces around in college football, gets the interim job for a cup of coffee at USC, never gets the permanent label. Same at LSU, does get the permanent label, and all people wanted to do was look at his track record as a head coach, and all they had to go on was Ole Miss, and he was terrible there. Does that always mean you're going to be terrible in the future? No, he just won the national championship. So I don't always take your past failures as a coach or as a CEO or as a parent or whatever the case may be as a surefire indication you're going to fail in the future. But yet it also does bear repeating that he has failed in the past spectacularly in some cases. So in the long run, emailer finishes here, Leach will win six to eight games a year. Pay close attention here. Leach will win six to eight games a year at Mississippi State, which makes all Mississippi State fans happy. That's false, Lee. You know that's false. You're winning six games a year. You're not happy. You're winning seven games a year. Most of you are probably not happy. Here's why you're not happy. You think, I'm going to put words in your mouth here. Some Mississippi State folks that I've spoken to think that the standard here for what Leach should achieve is higher than what Dan Mullen achieved. Dan Mullen, to me, is the best coach that they've had. Go back any era. To me, in the modern era, let's just say the modern era to to avoid arguments from 1930s. He's the best coach they've had. Um, He got him to number one in 2014. But, I mean, by and large, they were a team that when they were winning nine games a year, it was a minor miracle. I think people expect more than that here. I think people expect a higher consistent caliber of play than they got from Dan Mullen. I think it's just a little unrealistic. So you're telling me six to eight wins a year and everyone's happy. I don't know that I necessarily buy that. So he concludes, in the end, Leach is the better hire. There's a lot of well-thought-out points here. I disagree with them, but I do appreciate the email. I'm still going to stick right now with my notion that I like where Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss are a little bit more. Moving on, we've got a transfer quarterback on the market. This is a really big deal, virus or not. This, in the college football world, has been dominating the headlines. The other day, JT Daniels, USC quarterback, he's injured at the moment, announced that he was entering the transfer portal. For the record, USC could be where he ends up. It may all be for naught. He may not go anywhere. Clay Helton, to his credit, Southern Cal head coach, put out his own statement where he said, hey, we're assisting him. We've been working on this with him. It's not a surprise to us. So, I mean, there's coordinated effort there. So we'll see where he ends up. I was on a lot of websites yesterday. I was reading some stuff from Tennessee, stuff from LSU, just trying to get a gauge. I know what I've heard, but I want to know what other people have heard about where JT Daniels could end up. Because this is a former five-star caliber quarterback. This is a really, really big deal. I think a lot of folks have not evolved enough on the way that they think about transfers. I'll finish with that. But first, I want to read you some of Wes Rucker's work from over at Vols247.com. He, I think yesterday, put out a piece about this. It was really good. This is the best quote I thought he had. The very second you enroll in classes at the college of your choosing, your coaches are trying to recruit players better than you, players they believe are capable of stepping in and taking your job. Don't take it personal. It's just business. If they're not recruiting players capable of stepping in and taking your job, someone is going to step in and take their job. That is beautifully put. If your coaches are not consistently trying to find players better than you, then the administration is eventually going to find a coach better than them. 
When he went, J.T. Daniels being the he, went into the transfer portal, I told you Tennessee immediately stood out for me. That was backed up by a couple of folks that I texted. Nothing concrete, but I can tell you pretty confidently, as can a few other people. I saw Wes Rucker confirm this. A couple of other folks have. And I'm just going to jump in there because I've been told independently there's been communication between J.T. Daniels and the Tennessee staff. This is not big breaking news. I think most Vols fans know that at this point. There's the T. Martin connection. Uh, Jim Chaney, really good with quarterback, so there's a good enough reputation to sell him on there. You get to play in the SEC. That's a good selling point for a lot of kids. How about the list of why nots, though? Because this is really what was laughable to me the other day. As soon as I suggested it, as soon as a lot of other people have suggested, hey, maybe Tennessee for JT Daniels, there have been people that have offered the following in pushback. Now, I want you to just follow along with me here. The first thing, and this I find truly laughable, I had some Tennessee fans tell me, we already got too many quarterbacks. There's no such thing. There never has been, and especially today, there never will be again such thing in this sport, in modern college football, as having too many quarterbacks. I was telling Colin before the show, I remember 2013, 2014, somewhere around there, at one point, I was doing talk radio in Georgia at the time, Alabama recruiting. They had like a ton of running backs. At one point, they had in the same backfield, Derrick Henry, Kenyon Drake, Alvin Kamara, uh, Alti, Tenpenny, Tyron Jones. All these guys were four or five star running backs. And some Bama fans said, why, why aren't we spending these scholarships at running back? I mean, we got enough. Like our cup's already full. Our cup's overflowing. Let's, let's recruit some DBs. Let's recruit another quarterback. A year later, Derrick Henry's having to carry the ball 45 times a game against Auburn because they really don't have any true backup. And even if they did, I mean, let's be real, Derrick Henry was toting the load for him. But the point is, you had an accident that took the life of one of those running backs. You had a couple other ones transfer out. You had discipline, you had injury. And all of a sudden, all those running backs are down to one running back. And nowhere to be found was the group a year earlier that was saying, oh, we got too many running backs. If it can happen at running back, trust me, it can and will happen at quarterback. There are a few truths in this world. I can tell you right now, every quarterback that's on Tennessee's roster right now will not be there this time next year. I know one of them's going to graduate, I think, but you get my point. Anytime, anytime you have a chance to take a talent like this, you take that talent. Here's part B of the pushback that I got. Good luck going seven and five every year. This is from the group that would suggest to the individual being the player here, you're going to go there and they're always going to get the same results, even if you were there as they had been getting prior to you being there. Okay. If you understand anything about an alpha type A personality, which you hope he has, otherwise it's not worth really wasting a whole lot of time on him. So let's assume that's the kind of guy JT Daniels is. Let's assume that he is a supreme competitor. Competitors just laugh at that. And competitors dismiss you like a gnat on their shoulder. They are the difference in seven and five and 10 and two or 11 and one or 12 and 0 in their mind. There is no seven and five if they're there. The whole reason that that team's seven and five is because I'm not there. As soon as I walk in the door, we're no longer a seven and five team. People say this in recruiting all the time. Why would you want to go there and go seven and five when you come here and win a championship? Because I can go there and win a championship because I'm part of what it takes to build a championship culture. So that's how I would explain that. Part three, what does it say to the guys already on the roster? This is not me speaking. This is part of the pushback that I got from Tennessee fans and maybe some other fans. Not all Tennessee fans. This was a minority, I want to point out. Most of them would welcome a quarterback of this caliber. What does it say to the other guys on the roster? I'll tell you exactly what it says. It says, we're trying to find guys better than you. That's what it says. Let me go back to the quote from Wes Rucker 
from Vols 24-7. Brilliantly put, this is business. Quote, if they, being the head coaches and coaching staff, if they're not recruiting players capable of stepping in and taking your job, someone's going to step in and take their job. You think Ryan Day worries about hurting anyone's feelings right now? Have you seen Ohio State recruiting? You think he's clearing it with his defensive back room before he takes another five-star out of they can pretty much go anywhere they want to right now. Do you really think they have these conversations in Tuscaloosa? Do you really think Dabo Swinney's having the conversation right now of, we need to pump the brakes on this kid. We, we need to pause on that kid. It could upset the players we already have. No, they don't have those conversations there, nor do they need to be having those conversations in Knoxville. Now, some people, I don't think have evolved the way that they think about transfers enough in college football today versus 1995, 1975, it's just a totally different world. It is still rapidly evolving. Recall, if you will, with me, Oklahoma very recently. And I want you to think about something because I still get the sense from my interactions with a lot of you that you view taking a quarterback via the transfer market as somehow less genuine or less valuable than recruiting one out of high school. I don't believe that at all. So I want to take you back. You can pick any of a number of years now. Oklahoma last year, was there an asterisk next to their name as they went into Atlanta? Now, they got beat down, but they won the Big 12, and they were in the college football playoff with Jalen Hurts. Did they make them fill out any special paperwork for getting a quarterback off the transfer market? What about Baker Mayfield? Does anyone recall Baker Mayfield signing with Oklahoma out of high school? Of course you don't. He didn't. You ever heard of Kyler Murray? You remember his long extended recruitment and then signing with Oklahoma on National Signing Day? Of course you don't, because he didn't. They, being Oklahoma, got all those cats off the transfer market. They've perfected the art. In fact, they let you take your lumps on someone else's roster, and then they say, okay, are you ready? You're, you are, okay, come on. And then they win with basically the best of the best on the transfer market. I don't know why Tennessee couldn't do the same thing. Harrison Bailey may be a future stud. I have full confidence in him. I don't care if you actually have Joe Burrow descend from the pro draft back to college and put on a Vols uniform. You go find the best talent that you can and you stack it on your roster and then you let the chips fall where they may. That's how you put together a championship caliber roster. If you're worried about feelings of players already in the room, if you're worried about having too many kids at a position, if you're worried about anything other than putting the best of the best in Knoxville, Tennessee, and then taking the field with them, you're seven and five. You're eight and four. There's a lot of room for average in this sport. I don't think they're paying Jeremy Pruitt and that coaching staff what they're paying them to go seven and five or eight and four. Average has been the standard of the day long enough in Knoxville. It's time to ascend to the next level, and it's time to challenge Georgia instead of going toe-to-toe with Kentucky or Vanderbilt. That's what it's time to do. We'll see if they actually do that. All right, let's move on. When you have sports mixed with your pop culture, along with humor and celebrity interviews, your earbuds are enjoying the Rich Eisen Show. Dan Orlovsky, are you still a Jaden Daniels is the best quarterback available in the draft guy? I think the three things that make it stand out for me are, number one, I think his ball placement versus man coverage is the best in the draft. Every quarterback in the NFL is accurate. He's got the best on tape. Number two, most transferable stuff to the NFL. And then I think the third thing is pocket peace. Search for the Rich Eisen Show on YouTube or wherever you listen. We had some we had some ideas, but I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to hit Q&A here. So here's what we were going to do at this point in the show tonight. What I was going to do is because of the Bulls docu-series that's starting tonight, it starts in about 30 minutes if you're watching the show live, and if you are, we appreciate it. Uh, and if you are, go ahead and hit the like button or subscribe if you haven't already. Do a lot of things that uh, we ask you to do so much so that it gets redundant. So what we were going to do is 
I was going to essentially think about the last 20 years in college football. And we were going to come up with some 30 for 30 ideas. Now, this Bulls documentary tonight, it's not a 30 for 30. This is an eight-parter, I think. Colin, how long does it go? It goes for like two months. Two episodes a night, every Sunday night. This thing starts in about 30 minutes. It's going to be incredible. If you haven't read the story about what they did here, essentially the Bulls allowed a full crew to film their entire 97-98 season. Everything. All access. And Michael Jordan had full control of when it finally was released and not until a couple of years ago did he sign off on it. And so you're going to have a really, really eye-opening look. It's unedited. going to be a lot of F-bombs flying. I would put the children to bed before you uh, at least watch this on ESPN. I think ESPN2 is there in the clean version. But my point is, what if this were to happen in the world of college football? What would you like to see? And I'm going to pose this for the Thursday show because I think you may come up with some better ideas than I did. I've got four money ideas right now, but I want to push this to Thursday night. But if you, in hypothetical land, could have put a full documentary crew with any team, any person, for any stretch of time, let's call it last 35, 40 years, what would you have liked to see? Here's the catch. I want creative titles, because Colin and I think we have some pretty creative titles. So I want to get some creative titles from you. We're going to do this on the Thursday show. What I'm going to do right now to end this show is I'm going to go with some Q&A because we had a couple of really good ones. I think the first one's going to be a lot more controversial than it should be. Connor Patterson leads us off. Who do you consider the blue bloods of college football? What is your criteria? Well, my criteria, and I didn't write it down, but I don't think we need to. My criteria is you have to have been relevant across at least three generations, including this one. I can't have you, for instance, Miami's not going to be a blue blood for me. I can't have you dormant for 20 years and still consider you a blue blood. You can't go dormant for that long. Um, I'm not going to have Florida State in here only because I would like to see their success have extended back further into history. And I would not so much today, okay, because they've won a championship in the last decade. Florida State, you all know the Bowden story. You know how they were built. Um, had they done that in the 70s instead of late 80s, 90s, etc., maybe they fit this qualification. So I don't know necessarily how far back you have to go. I just think it's further back than I've been alive. And I was born in 1985. So those are the rough qualifications here. Here are the blue bloods in college football to me. Texas fits the mold. Oklahoma fits the mold. That's it in what is today the Big 12. USC is the only Pac-12 team I'm putting on here. There are only two SEC teams that I'm putting on here. I think a lot of younger viewers are going to be pretty surprised who B is. A is Alabama, no doubt. B is the University of Tennessee. It's not Florida, doesn't go back. The winning culture, the championships, they don't go back far enough. Georgia, not enough championships. There's a consistent good tradition there. There's not elite tradition back far enough. Well, they go back a long time. It's just, it hasn't been consistent. Who else would it be? LSU, no. Uh, Pre-Saban, they were really nothing to write home about for a long time. Who else would it be? So I know a lot of people are going to be bent out of shape. I know my audience and I can already look into the future and know what the comments are going to say here. Auburn is going to claim that they have a spot here. You are a blue blood in the SEC. I don't think you're a blue blood in college football. Um, surprisingly, Arkansas, if you take the entire history of the program, hasn't always been SEC. They would have a fairly good argument here. But Tennessee and Alabama are the only two SEC teams I put in there. I put three from the Big Ten. Those are, of course, Ohio State, Michigan, and Penn State. Slam dunk. Penn State's in here. And then I almost forgot because I was going conference and I didn't think about independent, but Notre Dame is in there as well. So we came up, what was nine teams. That's it. 
Nine blue bloods I came up with in college football. Texas, Oklahoma, USC, Bama, Tennessee, Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State, Notre Dame. I'm sure I left 50 off, and I'm sure you're going to let me know about it. I can't wait. All right, now, to end the show, Ryan Begwood asked, or Bedgood, excuse me, I want to get the names right. Ryan Bedgood asks a really good question here, because I know where he's going. I think this could be an effort to entrap me, but that's like trying to nail jello to the wall, Ryan. That's not going to work here, even though we're live. I don't think it's going to work. Since I, and he's talking to me, since I am of the four and no more mentality, that means I am against college football playoff expansion. I love the four-team model, love the urgency and the value that it puts on the four seats at that table, love what it does with the regular season. It enshrines it as the most important regular season in sports. We can go down that road another time. We have like 50 times already. Ryan asks, since you are of the four and no more mentality, what would you think about four super conferences, essentially in college football, and then those four conference champions being the four teams in the playoff. In theory, I know what we're doing here. We are, I guess, reinvigorating the value of a conference championship, and you are sort of enshrining the value of a conference championship while also maintaining the integrity of the regular season through a four-team playoff. But what I say, and the model that I've always liked, is just taking the best of the best. I don't believe, you know, if I take this piece of paper right now and I just draw quadrants on it, okay? It's, it's, it looks like a game of Foursquare. I don't know if you can see that. And if you're listening to the podcast, this means nothing to you. What about me drawing lines on a map means anything when it comes to determining who the best of the best is in the sport? Now, I know you would push back and say, well, there's no perfect way. So the best, the best ways in an imperfect world would be to let's have four equally divided conferences. Let's take the conference champion out of each of those because... If you can't win your conference, how can you claim to be the best team in America? That's not what the playoff is. The playoff is not deciding the best team in America. The playoff is deciding the best four in America and then letting them play it out on the field to crown a champion. And if you're telling me, for example, your argument for conference champs only is, well, if you can't be the best in your conference, how could you be one of the best in America? I always use the classroom analogy. Like if I were to go into a school and I were to just want to find the four smartest kids, what would we do? We'd just find the four smartest kids. We wouldn't say, uh, you can only take one kid per class because there's going to be an advanced placement class down here in uh, wing three, uh, room five, where like 58% of the smartest kids in the school at any given time are all in that classroom. Well, how stupid would it be of me to say, sorry, I know, I know seven of you have higher IQs than the rest of the school combined, but we can only take one of you. I would never do that. i just go find the best of the best. And in college football, think of this radical analogy. I always use this. Now, this is fantasy, can't happen, but it just goes to drive home a point. If I were to take the who were uh, San Francisco 49ers, Kansas City Chiefs, let's just say they decide we're done with the NFL. We want to be in the Pac-12 South this next year. We would say before the season started, even though those two teams would be favored by five touchdowns over whoever the next best college football team is, we would say before we're even starting the season, a maximum of one of you is good enough to make the college football playoff because you both happen to be in the same division. Now, if I changed nothing about any of those teams but picked one of them up and put them on another coast and magically they're in another conference, same coach, same roster, same everything, it's just you're in a different point on a map, all of a sudden you are good enough. That makes no sense. So I like getting objective people in a room, getting enough of them. It's not one person. It's, it's not an authoritarian just saying, you're in, you're in, you're in. It's also, we're eliminating media bias because it's not media guys and girls deciding. 
but you put some qualified people in a room, you have checks and balances, you have different criteria, and whoever meets them, whoever checks the most boxes, eyeball test included, I know you hate it, but eyeball test included, because wins and losses are not equal in the sport of college football, those are the four teams that we're putting in. I'm happy enough with that model. I, for the record, believe, Ryan, one day we will arrive at the point where we have four super conferences. To tell you what that would look like, I think 16 teams to a league. I think in the next decade to two decades, maybe way sooner, maybe closer to two decades from now, the SEC and ACC will have merged into one sort of leviathan. I think the Big Ten as it is will just grow to 16 teams. And I think the Pac-12 and the Big 12, a combination of those two conferences, will form... I'll tell you what, what actually probably happens is the SEC adds some teams, the ACC adds some teams, the Big Ten adds some teams, and then the Big 12 and Pac-12 sort of merge. And those are your four conferences. What happens to Notre Dame? What happens to the teams in the combination of the Big 12 and Pac-12 that they're in enough room for? I don't know. I think that's where we're headed. I think the dollars alone tell you that's where we're headed. Everyone talks about how we're headed for playoff expansion. Well, that's not all we're headed for. Uh, There's a lot in the way of conference realignment that was really prevalent about eight or nine years ago. And I sort of think that that's like a volcano erupting. It's not dormant. It's still active. It's going to happen again. Don't know exactly when and don't know exactly what series or chain of events could lead to that happening, but it'll happen. Trust me. What I'd love to happen as we end the show is if you haven't already subscribed to the channel, please do so. I mentioned that I was going to tell you something about the podcast. So here it is. Last show, which was Thursday, and we're live every Sunday and Thursday night at 7 Eastern, 7 Central, 8 Eastern. I asked you, because we have the Late Kick podcast, and if you haven't already, five-star reviews and written reviews really help us. A lot of you did that last week. We appreciate that. Late Kick with Josh Pate, anywhere you download your podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, it's right there in the show description. Just click on it beneath and subscribe accordingly. I asked you, and right now all we do is we put the audio version of the live shows in podcast form, and that's what you listen to. But there's no bonus material. There's nothing in the podcast feed that you couldn't get on the YouTube feed. Now I figure we got a lot of free time now, and we got a long time till the season starts. So, I, I mean, I got all the equipment in the world at the apartment. Why not put the call out there? And if there's an audience for it, we'll record bonus content every week. So I asked you. I thought I'd hear from about 15. I heard from about 150 of you that, yes, man, we want it. Give it to us, give it to us, give it to us. Now, it's obvious with over 200 of you watching right now live there's still very much a thirst for college football. And I know that because I know our audience as well as anyone. I talk to you guys all the time throughout the week. So that's what we're going to do. I can't tell you definitively we'll start it this week. I'm working with our podcast guys. Tani really loved that I called him a wizard on last show. So Tani, the podcast wizard, Connor does a pretty darn good job too. I'm going to work with them and work out whatever the best scheduling is and whatever the best format is, et cetera. But I'm going to get you some bonus content in the podcast feed. So if you haven't already subscribed there, it is the Late Kick with Josh Pape. I think there are two of them. There are duplicates right now. We're working on wiping that out. But go ahead and subscribe there and you'll eventually see it uh, populate your feed. So really appreciate it tonight. I got off the air in less than 45 minutes and now we're going to go watch a really, really good documentary. Uh, We really appreciate all of the comments and we will eventually have football on the horizon, on a definitive date, on a schedule, and won't that be exciting? But until then, I'm Josh Pate. This is The Late Kick for Colin, for Aaron, for everyone live, everyone watching the replay and listening. We appreciate you being here. We'll see you right back the same time Thursday night. Have a great week.